I invite you to open your, your Bibles there. Just a reminder, at the end of the service, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's for those of us who are trusting Christ, walking in love with Him. So you're turning there to Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to realize that one of the most common laments that Jesus often expressed to His disciples was this lament. He often said, um, O ye of little faith, is what He often would say. Picture Him in the boat with His disciples in a great storm. Jesus asleep because of the labors of the day exhausted Him. The waves were crashing over the boat, so the boat was, was filling with water and the disciples were in a panic. Jesus was woken up by His disciples and said, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And He got up, rebuked the winds, the sea became perfectly calm. You men of little faith. On another occasion, Jesus was feeding the multitudes. He sent His disciples away on a boat while He remained behind to pray. The storm came up. Jesus was on land. He saw the the boat rocking in the water. And so Jesus walked out to them on the water. And when the disciples saw Him, rightly so, they were terrified. And Jesus spoke with them said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then Peter saw Him. And remember what He said? He said, Lord, command that I may come to You. And He took a few steps and then He started looking at the water around became frightened and began to sink. He said, Lord, save me. And you know what Jesus said to Peter? He immediately stretched out his hands, took hold of him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to the multitudes, He preached this famous section, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body what you put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? He said, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than them? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil or spin. But I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory has not clothed himself as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow and thrown into the furnace, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration having a great experience letting His glory shine through so that Peter, James, and John could see the magnificence of who He really was. And He walks down the mountain with His disciples, telling Him not to, not to tell, tell us or speak to anybody until He's risen from the dead. And He sees this large commotion. As He discerns what was going on, we discover that the disciples had attempted to cast out this demon from a boy. Jesus replied with these words, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring Him to Me. This demon lamenting there, His disciples not able to, to help. Then Jesus saw the boy, the, the Spirit then threw him on the ground. He started rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And the Father said to Jesus, If you can do anything, take pity upon us and help us. And Jesus said, If you can? What do you mean? I'm the Son of God. If you can, what do you mean? He said, All things are possible to him who believes. And then uh, the boy's father cried that great phrase, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Then Jesus rebuked the boy. The demon came out of him. And the boy was cured at once. And then they get away from the crowd and the disciples are talking to Jesus. They say, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said, because of the littleness of your faith, you couldn't cast it out. And then Jesus makes a statement of the power of faith. He says, truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, it's a very small seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So, really a statement begs a few questions for us, doesn't it, this morning? How large is your faith? How strong is your faith? How strong is my faith? I mean, none of us have moved mountains. I don't see, I don't think that we have. Chris, are you successful? Okay, she's successful. I don't know where I put it. We'll talk about it later. So kids, if you want to just quietly go back and Chris has got some notes for you. Actually, Chris, why don't you come forward and and bring the notes here. We'll just pause right here. Okay, time out. You you can tell March Madness has started, right? We're just calling time out. So 
Krista, and they can make, grab a sheet for you and then grab a clipboard and you can just maybe... Why don't you hand out the sheets, Krista, and we'll get this going. Where did I put them, Krista? Where were they? Where were they? They're in my office, not on my printer. Well, my faith was pretty small because I didn't think she'd find them because I didn't know where they were. I just knew they weren't on the printer where I told them they were. I was thinking they maybe in the bag or... So God just even answered a prayer. Maybe answered the prayer of you parents as well. All right, let's pick up where we were. Here's a question, right? If faith can move mountains, how big is our faith? None of us have moved mountains, at least unless some of you are in Japan recently. Our faith must be pretty small. What about this? Do you realize the power of faith? Can faith really cast demons out? Can faith really move mountains? Is it true that all things are possible to him who believes? And maybe there's a bigger question. Do you want to have faith? Do you want to have a faith that moves mountains? Maybe this morning finds you where it finds me. Oh Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief, as the boy's father said. Well, as we dig into Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 and 31, we're going to find two illustrations of the power of faith. And may they stir our hearts this morning to believe. Verse 30, by, the, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Two short verses, two short points. My first point is this, faith conquers. Faith conquers. Of course, I'm talking about Jericho being conquered by faith. Even as we look at there, verse 30, it's by faith that the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. Now, certainly it was God who caused the, the walls to go down, but God used the agency of faith, the faith of the Israelites. Before, though, we dig into verse 30, I want us to look at the white space between verse 29 and verse 30 because it has a, a lesson for it. I mentioned it last week. But, but the, the author of the, the book of Hebrews has been working through Genesis and Exodus and just kind of working slowly through people of faith that give us models and examples of what it is to, to live by faith and what it means to, to grasp hold of God by faith and how it is that all the saints of old have lived by faith. But there's a startling omission here between verse 29 and verse 30. We fail to see the faith of the Israelites who left Egypt on the way to the promised land. I mean, we fail to see the people who saw the ten plagues the sheer power of God. We fail to see the people who walked through the Red Sea on dry land. Or the people who saw the bitter water made sweet or were provided for for 40 years in the wilderness with the manna. Or saw the water come out of the rock sufficient to provide drink for an entire generation. We fail to see this generation that saw the wonders of God more than any other generation has ever seen the wonders of God. And I don't say this, no generation has ever seen God's power and miracles as that generation did. No generation before them, no generation after them. I'm even talking Jesus. He performed great miracles, but nothing of the magnitude of what God provided. When, when Jesus fed the multitudes, He fed 5,000 men. Maybe up to 20,000 people. Another occasion, He, he, he fed 4,000 men. Maybe another 20,000 people. We're not sure. Thousands of people, but God fed millions of people every day for 40 years. Kind of shows you the scope of the miracles of the plagues which these people saw. Not only the wilderness, but also the plagues. It's just a phenomenal how large they were on grand scale. Jesus calmed the waters, but God turned the waters all into blood. God was bringing the frogs, gnats, and swarms of insects and the pestilence and discerning. It was dark everywhere except in Goshen. Miraculous miracles. And yet, what characterized that generation? Unbelief. Let us rid forever the notion that seeing a miracle of God is going to help us believe any more than just hearing from God in His Word. 
It's not the signs and wonders going to help us believe. It's God through His Spirit that opens our hearts and our minds to see and believe. I do believe it's no accident that from verse 29 to verse 30 we skip 40 years because that generation lacked the faith that God requires. And you remember the story, right? Moses, the Lord said to Moses, Send out for yourself men that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give the sons of Israel. So Moses sent twelve tribes, one, twelve spies, one from each of the tribes. They went to the land and discerned correctly that it flows with milk and honey. They brought back fruit of the land that all could see, but unfortunately ten of those twelve spies gave a bad report. They said the people are too large. The cities are too strong. The cities are too fortified. We will never take it. It's only Joshua and Caleb who said, no, let's trust the Lord. Let's take the land. And despite all their pleadings, the people of Israel lifted up their voice and grumbled against Moses and said, would that we have died in Egypt. Why is the Lord bringing this land only to die by the sword? Our wives and little ones will become plunder. Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? And the last straw came. Numbers 14, verse 1. Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. They want to return. Well, God had provided for them all the way through. And God's verdict was announced. All your corpses will fall in the wilderness of this generation. Anyone 20 years old and younger, we're going to wait for everyone to die and pass away. And then in 40 years, we'll have a new generation. You can take the land. Joshua and Caleb, believers, they get to come in and take the land. And for 40 years, they wandered unbelief. And, and the writer of the Hebrews skips over that generation from verse 29 to 30. He knew about that generation because he said in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 and 18, who provoked them when they had heard? He said, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, who fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? It's these people who, who lived in unbelief, who lived in disobedience, they failed to take the land. And let us learn from that generation that failed to make it into Hebrews chapter 11. And let us not be like them, but may we be like the Israelites of the next generation who conquered Jericho and took the land. I think there's been times when we as a body have been a bit like those trying to enter Kadesh Barnea. Scared and timid, not believing the promises of God. But may we be not like that. May we learn. May we be like a next generation that conquers Jericho by faith. Because they did, as verse 30 says. By faith, they conquered them by the walls of Jericho falling down. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. Now, the story is told for us in Joshua chapter 6. So I want you to turn back there in your Bibles. We're going to stay there most of the time, by the way. Joshua chapter 6. Unlike the generation that wandered in the wilderness, we see this generation no complaining. No arguing. They come and they just take the land. They're filled with faith. Hebrews 11 says, Now Jericho, verse 1, Joshua 6, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. Jericho is a prominent city in the Jordan Valley. There where the Jordan River flowed from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. They were a little bit north of the, Red, of the Dead Sea, a little bit to the west of the Dead Sea, just past the river if you're approaching it from the east. It, by the way, is the lowest city on the planet, 670 feet below sea level. Still the lowest city today. It's a desirable place to live. I remember Yvonne and I alluded to this several times. When we got there, it was like a tropic oasis. It was very hot, very humid. Um, and we were there in the summertime. But it's got a nice water supply. It's got a good climate. It's very comfortable, very easy. And we pick it up. Jericho, by the way, though, is on the eastern end of Canaan. And it is really the gateway to conquering the land. A little bit like St. Louis with the gateway of the arch is the, was the gateway to the west. So, likewise... Jericho was the gateway to conquering the land of Canaan. You're going to conquer the land of Canaan? You've got to go through Jericho. Just because of the topology of the ground, of the land. Because there was a road that went from Jericho up to Jerusalem. But Jericho was the stronghold. And we pick up the story. We see the city was tightly shut. It says in Joshua 6.1. There's a reason why. It's because they were scared to death. 
They were scared of these Israelites. They were afraid of attack. They heard how the Lord had dried up the Red Sea. They'd heard about how Israel had destroyed Sihon, king of Eshpan, and Og, king of Bashan. Their hearts had melted. They lost courage. They feared for their lives. So they buckled down their hatches, allowing no one out, no one in. It's a common strategy. The days of old, without airplanes and helicopters, attack from above is impossible. So you just make the walls of your city real strong. Sometimes you double your walls. Sometimes you fortify your walls. And if your walls of your city are strong, then you can, you can bear attack. So they made the city as secure as they could. And then verse 2, we see the Lord's perspective on this whole matter. He says, The Lord said to Joshua, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its valiant warriors. Here's a prophetic utterance from the Lord of victory. From God's standpoint, the victory was already complete. Not only would the city come into Joshua's hand, but also the strong of the city. He said also the king and all his valiant warriors. The idea here is that none is going to escape. It's a done deal from God's standpoint. Then the plan of attack comes in verse 3. This is where we see faith come in. You shall march around the city and all the men of the war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also the seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Strange plan. Totally strange plan. I mean, to conquer a city is hold up like Jerusalem in ancient days. Generally what they do is they'd find the point of attack where it is they want to attack. Find a weakness in the wall perhaps. Find a place where the wall is a little bit lower and focus all their efforts there. Batter the, the wall. Attack it. You know, as the arrows are coming down and people are attacking them, throwing boulders down, whatever. You're going to attack the weakness of the wall or build a siege ramp. You've done this before in ancient Israel. They, they just put stones on top of stones and so built a ramp right up to the wall so that they could get out as well. Ascend the siege ramp to take the city by force. Or maybe you do something tricky like putting all your effort here only to have a spy go around back and climb over and come in. Somehow infiltrate the city, open the gates so you can come in and attack. Or maybe you starve the people out like the Romans did in AD 70 when they surrounded Jerusalem and wouldn't let anybody out. Eventually the water supplies go out, the food supplies go out, they wear thin, then you can attack. That was the way of the ancient world. But never would you devise a plan like this. Never would you tell the, the army to walk around the city for six days, just walking, and tell your, your uh, priest to blow a, a trumpet and expect it to fall down before you. Now, in God's, God's timing, uh, I came home yesterday from, uh, from church, last week from church with these in my hand. This is, was the uh, children's church lesson. Not sure if any of you were in children's church last week, but this was the lesson. You see, what city is this? Jericho. What is Jericho, right? So we can just put that up there like that. And what's this? It's a horn, right? Right? It's called the toot toot. Do you know why it's called the toot toot? Toot toot. Get it? <laughs> Let's try, to, let's try this though. We're going to blow the horn and blow it down, right? Is it going to work? That's not how we would do it. It doesn't work. You've got to blow it down like this. That's how we would do it. We would get our own plans. We wouldn't use this because we think that this doesn't work. But right here is where you see the faith of the Israelites. Joshua and his fellow Israelites. We're going to trust the Lord and do this plan which sounds strange or they're going to try to do their own way to conquer or they're going to do like the generation before and not even enter the land. We see Joshua's faith in verse 6. He instructed the priests. He said this, Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, you've got to catch, this is an act of faith on Joshua's part because Joshua just got this crazy plan from God and now he doesn't change it. He just tells it to the priests. This is what we're going to do. 
He says, so Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. So here's a question, right? Joshua believed 40 years earlier. He's saying now, 40 years later, let's take the land and we're going to take it this way by marching around the land blowing trumpets. Earlier, 40 generations, 40 years before, the people rebelled. And the story was the same. I love how Moses tells the story. He said, don't be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will Himself fight on your behalf just as He did for Egypt who was before your eyes. That was the message 40 years earlier. And here comes the same message to the same people conquering the same people. The Lord says, don't fear them. The Lord your God will go before you and fight the fight. And what would they do? Would they follow in the way of their forefathers or would they follow in the way of faith? And here we see them following in the way of faith. Verse 8. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carried the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord and went forward and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people saying, You shall not shout nor let your voice be heard nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, shout, and then you shall shout. So picture the parade. you get armed men in the front of the procession. Then you have seven priests with horns next. And then you have the ark. And then you have armed guard behind them. And they're marching around the city. The only sound you heard was have the trumpets blowing. You would not have heard the people because Joshua told the people to be silent. Now, we don't know how big this procession was or how how many people were involved in this. Maybe, probably, just a few people is probably what it was. I mean, I I remember when uh, Avon and I got to go to Israel. It was was probably 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 13, 1998, I think. Uh, We got to Jericho, and I remember being amazed at how small the city where Jericho was. It uh, is 80 meters across, so I think football field across. 225 meters long. So think maybe about two football fields long. 700 meters in circumference. That's kind of all it was. To kind of give you a perspective, our property here is three acres. And uh, it's about that size. Maybe a little bit bigger, that was. But a parade that marches around our property isn't going to take a long time. And even if there were more people than just were... Uh, in this little entourage of armed people, seven priests, um, Ark of the Covenant, and then armed guard. Even if even if they had lots more armed guard walking around, still you, you you can't fit the whole nation of Israel all around the thing. It was only a representative people that that came around. My guess is that most of the people of Israel were waiting there for to attack later. In verse eleven, we see then that uh, that the the story of what's taken place. So the Ark. They had, he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once, then came in the camp and spent the night in the camp. Verses 12 through 14 speak about the second day. They did the same thing. And then in verse 15, we see how they did it on the seventh day. But I can't, I can't help but to think about the people of Jericho. You know, they were watching what was taking place. They knew that something was going on because they were afraid of the Israelites coming. So they battened down the hatches. And believe me, they had guards up on their wall watching what's happening. And then they come... And all they're doing is blowing these trumpets and walking around. What are the people of Jericho thinking? Are they spying out the land, looking for a weakness? They're looking at the wall, they're studying. With no attack coming, they're probably confused. Maybe they had some comfort. You know, maybe they aren't actually going to attack after all. I'm not sure, but whatever comfort they had was short lived because the victory came in verse 15. Then on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, and maybe some more people here, maybe they were surrounding the city, we don't know for sure, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Skip down to verse 20. 
So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. And here the city of Jericho fell to the Israelites by faith. I want you to notice this phrase here in verse 20 about how it speaks about every man went straight ahead. I mean, think about what that means. I think, I think you've got more than just a small entourage of people surrounding. I think you've probably got a bigger area surrounding around the city, at least to the seventh day. They blow the trumpets, fall down, and everyone marches straight ahead. Again, I take you back to the days when Yvonne and I were in Israel. We were there at Jericho. The city was built on a little mound, which is called a tell, which is Arabic for mound. And the reason it's built on a mound is because the cities were there and then the ruins come down and then you kind of build on top of them. So it was like a natural, it was like a natural hill where all the ancient cities were. And the effect was even it raised the height of the wall because not only had you go into the city, but you had to go up, up, up the tell even to get to the city. So the wall was even taller a little bit. Oftentimes there's a, an incline at the the base of the wall, maybe a little sharp incline. Now, we were there at the base of the tell. One of the instructors was telling about this cross-section of, uh, of, of an area that an archaeologist named Kathleen Kenyon had taken of Jericho. And she had she basically kind of taken a cross-section of the whole area and then recorded what she saw there. And um, he explained how one of the things that was found there was the remnants of a red brick wall found at the base of the, of the tell, kind of forming a ramp going up on into the city. He explained how this, the wall then probably fell outward. All you got is now rubble. Red brick was the form of how the wall was created at that time. Israelites probably ascended then and took the city that way. And you just say the Bible proved true that every man came straight ahead. There wasn't a small breach in the wall. The eastern section, I think the entire wall... The entire city was all exposed for them. Clearly, it was the power of God that all of a sudden left that city completely defenseless. The Israelites could have attacked wherever they wanted to. And they did attack. I want you to notice here in verse 21 that they, they did have to fight. God paved the way for breaking down the wall. But He didn't destroy Jericho like He destroyed the firstborn. Like He promised to do even first time entering the land. But this time Israel had to fight. If you look at verse 20, they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. They were taking a physical sword, killing everybody in sight. That's how faith works, isn't it right? I mean, faith doesn't mean passivity. Faith doesn't mean just, yeah, I hope so. No, faith acts. Faith works. That's the point of James. Faith without works is dead. If you have a live faith, it's going to work. It's going to act itself out. And the work is the expression of the faith. It's the proof of the faith. You see the work and you say, what was behind that? Well, it's the faith that was behind that. You look at how people live and you just say, does it show their faith or not? Are they believing or not? Because how they, how they work itself out demonstrates whether they're believing or not. Abel acted out his faith by worshiping the Lord. Noah acted his faith out by building the ark. Abraham acted out his faith by leaving his home country. Moses acted out his faith by considering the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt and gladly left Egypt. In the case of the Israelites, as they conquered, they showed their faith. That's why I said my first point. Faith conquers. The Israelites took hold of God's Word. They believed it. They acted on it. And they conquered the city. Of course, the generation before failed to grab hold of God's promises. They failed to believe them. This generation believed them. They took hold of them and took over the land of Canaan. God had told Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, be strong and courageous. And these people were strong and courageous to take the land and they conquered it all. And I think, you know, the application here comes for us corporately. You know, this is a corporately by faith all of Israel. The application comes to us so we'll be found in faith together. Or we spend our efforts squabbling with one squabbling with one another. Or we walk together unified in all that God has called us to do.
See, the work that God will call us to do at Rock Valley Bible Church will be done by faith as we walk together, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, and we make much of the cross. We speak much of Christ, Him crucified, calling people to repentance and turn from their sins, and believe in a Jesus who will forgive their sins as we believe in His sufficiency, make His cross our banner, unashamed of the Gospel, forgiving others as we have been forgiven. That's the way for a church to continue to conquer. It's not to squabble amongst ourselves. We will transgress and we will disappoint and we will hurt. But the way to pass forward is by pressing on by faith in God and, and, and letting the enemies be out there. right? And let us bring a message of love and mercy to them. And may we be the church that conquers by faith. Let's move on to our second point. We see that faith conquers in verse 30. And we see that faith saves in verse 31. You keep your finger here in Joshua 6, okay? But, but open up to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to keep our fingers there in both, both places just momentarily. So you can kind of hold your Bibles like this, okay? Kids, of your Bibles, you hold your Bibles like this. Hebrews 11, Joshua 6, all right? Just like that. Hebrews 11 verse 31 says, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. We see the this describes the salvation of Rahab. And again, rather than focusing upon the corporate Israel, we're focusing upon one person. Focusing on, on Rahab. Unlike her fellow citizens, she was not destroyed by the Israelites. Rather, she lived. It says, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient. The ones who were disobedient were the, the disbelieving ones. Those in Jericho who are not believing in, in God. And the details of this salvation are told back in Joshua 6. Okay, Look at Joshua 6. Keep holding your hands there because we're going we're gonna to look there. But Joshua 6, verse 17. These are the verses I skipped earlier because I wanted to deal with them now because they deal with Rahab. It says, The city shall be under the ban. Which basically means you cannot take any, um, any of the bounty for yourself. Any of the loot for yourself. You can't. It's under the ban. It, the city, and all that belongs, it, all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep for yourselves the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. That is foreshadowing Achan, who did this very thing, even though. Joshua had forewarned him. So the people shouted, the priests blew trumpets, and the people heard the sound of all the trumpets. The people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell flat, so everyone went up to the city, every man straight ahead, and they took it. I skip verse 19. That's the verse I want to look at. Verse 19, But all the silver and golden articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Here it is. Destroy everything. Destroy everyone except for Rahab. And except for the gold, silver, the bronze, and the iron, you can take that, but it's not for yourself. You take that for the house of the Lord. Rahab and her family be safe with us. Now notice verse 17 here, how close it matches. Hebrews 11, verse 31. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Only Rahab and her family shall live because she had the messengers. Hebrews 11, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Both these verses mention Rahab by name, mention her occupation. She was a harlot, a sinner. She said to survive the onslaught of the city. And the reason why is because she welcomed the spies in peace. Or because she hid the spies. So her faith in God acted such that she hid the spies and she didn't perish along with everybody else because she was believing. Alright, let's turn back to Joshua 2. That's really the basis then of her story. Why she was saved. And that's what we're looking at here. Faith saves. Here's the message of Joshua chapter 2, which we see come to fruition in Joshua chapter 6. We see in Joshua 2, Joshua sending out two men as spies secretly from the land of Shittim, saying, Go view the land, and especially Jericho. I find it interesting how Joshua didn't send out 12 spies. 
maybe you learned from before. He sent out only two to enter the entire land of Canaan, but particularly the land of Jericho, the gateway to the land. That's where we find them in the last half of verse 1. We see there, so they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Rahab's house was a frequent place for men to come. She was, it says, a harlot. That is, she was an unrighteous woman who received men gladly to support herself. Okay? Now, Josephus called her an innkeeper. I know the NIV has a, has a note there that says maybe she's an innkeeper. Well, now, in, in the society of the days of Jericho, innkeepers were harlots, okay? So don't get Rahab off the hook like she's an, a righteous person. She was unrighteous. She was a, a sexual sinner. But God saves sexual sinners. Apparently, someone noticed these two men entering the city, verse 2. He's told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come in here tonight to search out the land. Now, how they knew the purpose of their visits, total mystery. My guess is that intelligence was leaked somehow. Israel's a large nation. Somehow I get the intelligence there. People are coming into the city. These look like Israelites. So the king sought to thwart the efforts. So verse 3, we see the king's effort to stop them. He sends a, an envoy to her house. The king sent of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and who have entered your house. For they have come to search out all the land. If such men were found in the home, what would happen to these men? Kids, you have any idea what would happen to these men? Try, act it out for us, Ethan. Go ahead, for everyone to see. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> they are found. They're getting cut off. Rahab, filled with, filled with faith though, thwarted the efforts. Look at verse 4. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. It came about when it's time to shut the gate that the men went out. I do not know where the men went out. Pursue them quickly, for you will overcome them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Rahab's action straightforward. Okay, the story's pretty easy here. Rather than surrendering these men, she hid them. Rather than telling them, looking for them where they were, she sends them on a wild goose chase out of the city. Showed that she was more loyal to God than she was to her own countrymen. She could be rightly called a traitor because she was faithful to the Lord. And then in verse 8, she explains what she did, why she did it, and her hopes for the future. Now before they lay down, so she goes up to speak with these men. Now we, we don't see any impropriety here at all. Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to them, I know the Lord has given you the land. Past tense. I know God is giving you land, just like God said to Joshua, right? Joshua chapter 6. I know this happened. I know, and the terror of you has fallen on us, and the inhabitants of land have melted away before us. Here we get an insight into how the, the Jerichoites, if you will, those people of Jericho felt. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water at the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Because the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, and you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. I love statements like this. I mean, let's just reflect upon this statement that, that she gave. It was a statement of faith. It was a statement in utter desperation. It was, a, it was a statement 
for people who knew only a little bit about God, the statement of someone who had no promises of salvation, all Rahab was seeking was mercy. And she had no promise. These spies had made no promise that they would be merciful to her. And, and I think about statements in the Bible like this. Uh, Rahab's statement of desperation is a little bit like the woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years. In her desperation, she was thinking, if I but just touch the garment of Jesus, I'll be healed. Notice the desperation in Rahab's words. I know the Lord has given you into your hands. The terror has fallen on us. We've heard of your military victories. And our hearts melted. We had no courage. We're, we're lost without you. We are undone. She didn't know much about God. And she was a native from Jericho, certainly. And yet we see that she repented just like those in Nineveh who knew little about God when Jonah came into Nineveh and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. The people of Nineveh believed in God, although their knowledge of God was very little. And I believe her knowledge of God was very little as well. All, all she would have known being a resident of Jericho was paganism. And yet she saw Israel was victorious and concluded rightly, the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth belief, I, earth beneath. I would not be surprised if that was her total knowledge of God. That was her whole systematic theology. I know that your God, He is the God of heaven above and earth beneath. That might be all she knew. And yet she expressed her faith. She had no promises of salvation. She was not part of the covenant line. And by this, she reminds me a little bit of the Syrophoenician woman who had no promises of salvation. Remember, she was seeking Jesus and said even, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. Just saying, yes, but let the cup of salvation overflow and let me get a little bit, O oh God. And that's what Rahab is praying for. She begged for mercy. Verse 12 and 13, since I have dealt kindly with you, May you deal kindly with me. And she knew Jericho's days were numbered and she knew that there was no hope but mercy alone. You know, and even of all the people in Jericho, was she the one to deserve this? I mean, was she the righteous one in Jericho? She wasn't. She was a sinner. But as Jesus had mercy on the woman caught in adultery, so we find these men extending mercy to a sinful woman. And that's how God works. God extends mercy to us. We who are dead in our transgressions and sin without God, without hope in the world. But it's when God calls us by His irresistible grace and we see, we see You are the life. You, Jesus, that's where we find our life and our hope is in You. Right? And we see receiving mercy in verse 14. These men tell her, Our life for Yours. If you do not tell this business for ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Notice here, some is, yes, okay, Rahab, you're believing. You're believing in our God. We'll be merciful to you. But what's the condition? Basically, continued faith. Persevering faith. Keep trusting that our God is true. And if you continue in that faith, you do what we say, we'll deal kindly with you. I mean, that is, that is the message of the book of Hebrews, right? Jesus is better, so press on, right? It's, we press on. I, I remember boy, back when we were in chapter 3, a year ago. It's the faith that endures is genuine faith. Faith that doesn't endure is false faith. It's not the real thing. And so Rahab here basically says, well, if you've got the real thing, if you're continuing your, your pledge of obedience to the Lord, you're continuing to trust the Lord, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This was her profession of faith. Your God's a true God. He'll do us, he says. You'll conquer the city. We have mercy on me. And they said, yes. We receive our salvation the same way. Just by faith. By faith alone. Now, the content of our faith is different than Rahab's. I mean, we know about God. We have promises. God Himself it says, right, the one who believes me, I'll, I'll take him in. I'll never cast him out. We know that in Jesus, when we believe in Him, our sins are wiped away, dealt with finally at the cross. She had no promises of that. That's why I love her faith. But she believed the power of God. She entrusted her life to these two spies. It's all she could do. We believe in Jesus, though. We know all of what He did. His death, burial, resurrection. And we entrust ourselves to Him so we might be delivered from the wrath of God. 
I mean, our promise comes in Romans 10, verse 9. If we confess with our heart Jesus' mouth with Jesus' Lord and believe in our heart, God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. That promise comes from the mouth of the Lord Himself. It doesn't depend upon the promises of men as well-intentioned and full of integrity as these men are. Our promises are so much better. Do you see that? Than what Rahab had, and yet she believed. And so where are you? Are you trusting in God today? Are you trusting in Jesus? I hope you are. Realize the power of faith. What does faith do? Faith saves us from our sins. Faith gives us a righteousness which is from God because God says that Abraham, Abraham believed God and God made a transaction. He accounted it on the ledger. He gave it to him as righteousness. Our faith gives us a righteousness. Our faith will give us an eternal destiny. Faith will bring you into communion with God forever and lack of faith will send you into hell in everlasting torment forever. The power of faith. Well, the story concludes here in verse 15. I just want to read some of this. Then she let them down by a rope through the window. Her house was on the city wall. Just right there. The city wall was probably up. Her house was, was right next to that. So they get over her window, out the house, down the wall and scurry away. She said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to which we have made us swear unless we come to land. You tied this cord, a scarlet thread, in the window through which you've let us down and gather to yourself into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of these doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who's within you in the house, his blood shall be on his own head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Much has been made about the scarlet cord. Um, people say, oh, it's the scarlet, it's the red cord. It represents the blood of Christ. Allegorical interpretations of this, by the way, go way back. Clement of Rome, A.D. 100, gave this interpretation. Okay? I don't think the color is the point. I don't think that the scarlet points to the blood of Jesus. However, let us not ditch the cord while we ditch the color of the cord. Because I think there is a point in the cord. The cord is the expression of her faith. Remember we said last week, whatever God says to do to be saved, that's what we'll do. And in this instance with Rahab, it was just leaving that cord out the window of her door was an expression of her faith. That's what marked her out as different. I'm trusting in the promises of the spies to save me. I put this out the window. That's what I think the cord means. Just an expression of her faith. Today we express our faith in different ways. We express it with our mouth. Our mouth, we confess, yes, I believe and love Jesus with our lives. We confess it. We say, yes, I'm living for God. Look at the way I'm living. I'm, I'm pursuing Him. I'm loving Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. With our, our deeds of love and mercy demonstrate our love to God. We express our faith through our conversations, our prayers and our songs, our family, what we read with our children, what we speak to our children, what we do with our family, what we do with our children. All those are expressions of faith every bit as much as this cord hanging out the, the window. It's by faith that Rahab was saved. It, she wasn't saved by this cord, but this cord was the thing that embolized and symbolized, yes, I'm still one of His. I'm still believing in this. I ask you do, you, do you see cords in your own life? Are there symbols of faith in your own life? Say Someone can come into your house and say, yeah, they're a believer. I hear the way they speak. I see what they're, they're doing. I see the things they listen to. All those are manifestations of the way they're believing. That's what the cord is about, I do believe. Because it was the thing that symboled, showed that she was different, set her apart. I want you to bow your heads now as we think about preparing the Celebrating the Lord's Supper as well. Father, even celebrating the Lord's Supper 
is in some ways like the cord. As um, Paul said, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's a way, an expression for us to say, yes, Lord, our hope and our trust is in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a way that You've told us to express our faith. is by eating the bread and drinking the cup. And yet, Lord, we know that these in and of themselves are are not what save. In fact, even Your Word says if we judge the body wrongly, these things can bring, bring death upon us. So I pray, O oh Lord, that You and Your Spirit that we prayed for in the morning would be among us even right now to penetrate our own hearts to see where we are. Are, are we believing in Christ or not? Is He our whole trust? Not Christ plus our righteousness. Not Christ plus our family heritage. Not Christ plus the things we do. Not Christ plus our religious experiences. Not Christ plus our God. But Christ plus nothing. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. It means that everything we do expresses that faith. And even if the Lord's Supper here is an expression of our faith, I pray that we would celebrate it greatly. It is a bit like our our salvation that Jesus Christ came and His body was crushed for us. His blood was spilt for us. The wrath of God came upon Him and thereby passed over us. And in that, O Lord, we do rejoice. I pray right now, God, that You'd help us to examine our hearts. May we realize the power of faith. Plead You for faith as I even began. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I pray that You would be helping our unbelief to see You more clearly today than ever before. To see the, the glories of Jesus in a special way that we haven't seen before. So I pray, God, that You would, would help us.